0: This show is part of the Stuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which I'm as the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Porzio. My name is Andrew Carroll. And uh, what a thrill it is to say that we're you're know, back after a few special interview episodes and end-of-year pods, and we're back talking about character actors. And uh, today we are delving into the career of the chameleon, often imposing, but equally often charming, Bill Camp. And we're joined on the pod uh, virtually, our first virtual guest, by journalist and head stuff, all-star, absolute legend, Mark Conroy. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. I mean, I, especially after that introduction. I mean, it was too much. I'm bloody already. I'm doing great. Uh, i excited to talk about the one and only Bill Camp. Probably the most huggable person you have to talk about, I think. He only plays Bastards and Sweethearts.
3: That's a fair point, yeah, yeah. Andrew, would you like to run down his history? I will, yeah. So Bill Camp was born in Massachusetts in 1964. He attended the University of Vermont and the Juilliard School in New York. He was initially active in theatre from 1989 through 2016. He's the recipient of an Off-Broadway or Obie Award for his role as Quango Twistleton in Tony Kushner's Homebody Kabul. Of course. On Broadway, he appeared in critically praised revivals of Heartbreak House, Death of a Salesman, and The Crucible, for which he received a Tony Award nomination. He became an in-demand bit player after appearing in Michael Mann's Public Enemies, John Hillcote's Lawless, and Steve McQueen's Twelve Years a Slave. He has added colour to films such as Scott Cooper's Black Mass and Hostiles, as well as Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special and Loving. His recent film work has seen him move beyond bit player into vital supporting roles in Todd Haynes' Dark Waters, Paul Dano's Wildlife, and Todd Phillips' Joker. His career in TV is just as varied with an Emmy nod for his supporting role in The Night Of, and key roles in HBO's The Outsider and Netflix's The Queen's Gambit. He's married to fellow actor Elizabeth Marvel, with whom he has appeared in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln and this year's News of the World.
1: What a power couple. I love Elizabeth Marvel. She's great. Yes. House of Cards, Mayor with Stories, cool lady. Um, yeah, he's book up as someone I've enjoyed for a few years. Uh, the first time I noticed him was in The Night Of, and he you know subsequently followed that with a string of noteworthy tv parts and something noteworthy about him also is that in the last 10 years he's appeared in five films that were nominated for best picture joker lincoln 12 years a slave birdman and vice Ugh. hate vice based on what's coming next for him like down the pipeline like he could have two more like it could make it seven but we can talk about that at the end you two watched uh dark waters for this right
3: yeah uh, yeah, he plays Wilbur Tennant, who's a farmer in Parkersburg, West Virginia, who asks uh, corporate defense lawyer Robert Billott, played by Mark Ruffalo, to investigate chemical dumping on his land by the
0: DuPont Company. I have the report. Sons of bitches. Who the hell think they are? Who gives them the right? It's an evaluation. Evaluation. Hatchet a job, what it is. I've been farming my entire life. Entire life. You read that. You tell me you recognize my farm. Mr. Tennant. Read it!
3: Man, he's so good in this movie. He plays like a kind of gritty whistleblower with an accent, with like a West Virginia accent that just sounds like he's been gargling molasses and gravel his whole life. <laughs> and like every second word is incomprehensible, but he really gets the gravity of the role across, regardless of the fact that you can barely understand what he's saying. And like he has like electrified hat hair and like Irish grand eyebrows I think he is like probably the heart of the movie I would say Um, because he goes through so much in this movie like the from the start like nothing is going right from like there's all the dead cows that he's just buried under mounds on his land there's the bit where he has to shoot his own cow the film is almost almost becomes a horror movie at that stage until it's like yeah with the grey-green filter uh, that Todd Haynes constantly uses throughout it and the insane cow (laughs) charging at Bill Camp that he has to shoot. And also the beginning is like
1: Jaws or Piranha or something like those kids going into the, on the boat. and You you kind of think like if a mutated thing jumped out at them, like it wouldn't be out of place.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I think it like, it is a legal thriller at the end of the day. Mark Ruffalo investigates something sub-genre like Spotlight and Zodiac. And it does fall into a similar trap that Spotlight does where it's just like, lots of lots of shots of filing cabinets being opened people hauling boxes and circling words like c8 or um, fucking teflon in pen and uh, <laughs> but i think it's like it just has a bit more texture and it's just has a better look than most other legal thrillers you'll see yeah i, I just
2: think you said it right there i mean there's there's comparable movies to it, i suppose there's stuff like Obviously, Aaron Blockage is the one, which is, which is good. It's a bit more lighthearted, I suppose, even though it's obviously about corporate malfeasance as well and people dying of mm. horrible preventable diseases as well as something like <laughs> The Rainmaker. And I kind of think that Dark Waters is kind of a cut above those, and maybe it's, it's that kind of horror element to it. It, it. I mean, Todd Haynes, he's kind of revisiting the kind of stuff he did with Safe as well, that kind of horrible kind of sense of like, dread and paranoia of really when so you, so, I mean, you start the movie you think it's going to be like the remake and by the end it feels like safe like it's really you're, you're terrified drinking <laughs> end of a glass of one by the end of it and yeah it's like he is He Bill Camp is fantastic he is like the, the heart of the movie he's impossible to understand but like you get like I get the sense that there was real there's a sense of care about uh, his like preparation for the role because the guy is a real guy he was I mean slight spoiler he was like, murdered by corporate off and slick, and you know he is like yeah. you have a blue collar like uh, heart of gold that is always obviously like crushed by the corporate entity but like his performance really just kind of hammers at home that kind of horror of like just a huge Goliath crushing spirit of, of not just the spirit but the livelihood and the life of, of the man who, small man who has to endure it Like and, and his it's just so and like there's that line he says at the start it's like I mean nobody cares about this we're all fucked or something like that I'm paraphrasing it and then like is lying line yeah. later, which Mark Ruffalo repeats it is like that's what he told me at the, like at the start of this movie <laughs> he doesn't say that but like, that's what he told me and you know I was I thought he was a dumb hick but like uh realistically he told me the truth and like he really epitomizes that kind of that sense of blue collar kind of uh, just no hope sense of for those people who can't have live under that yeah. of the cost of that and like, he really does that really well and I think he's it's maybe one of his best performances um, um, and those eyebrows deserve an Oscar and they're all right, really <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah I would agree I agree with everything Mark's saying and it's, he, like it is a it's a trope or a cliche or an arch, archetype whatever you want to call it like the lower class kind of plaintiff suffering for the sake of um, eventually well maybe not saving his town but um, you know ensuring that um, future generations and uh, his peers will have um care granted to them because they, they'll they eventually suffer from the same things he did and um you know so he he died for something i guess is the is the point of the making here but there is that one little sequence and um, that feels like it could have been extended a bit more in the i think it's in the middle of the film where he comes it's just as the town is starting to turn against him and he comes home from church and uh, he just sees a helicopter flying really low over his land so he like Forces his family into the into the house and like grabs a gun and starts threatening the helicopter, helicopter screaming like I know what you did at it, and um, it just gives, it just adds that really unsettling energy. It's similar to the way that Mark Ruffalo meets uh, Victor Garber's character at the dinner or whatever, and he's like, oh, we're gonna take this um, case further uh, than just like suing you for you know to look at the to look at files, and Victor Garber just spits in his face like fuck you hick and I think all those things together like the cow pulling scene the helicopter and that little bit with Victor Garber just give it this unsettling energy that just like America said just elevates it above the likes of something like Spotlight or The Post
1: also in that um, all those scenes at the fancy lawyer dinners all the waiters are black and there seems to be a very like emphasis like there are is showing that more and how uncomfortable it is like I feel like there's a lot in this movie about class that wouldn't be in other corporate thrillers and it is basically a class story because it's about rich people fucking over people they see as disposable you know poor people i like i think it's the best in the they knew genre
2: when it came out it was kind of viewed as just another one of those movies and in a weird way it kind of was a victim of the fact that it was so it was just an addition to a long established genre but like watching it for the second time, uh shocked at how good it was in, it, in him, which it didn't really get that kind of air uh, recognition. What kind of makes it cut a cut book also is a lot of those other films always have ended up with that kind of inspirational, like, oh, we can overcome the the Goliath every time. But there's this the sense of the end of Dark Waters and epitomized by what happened to Bill Camp's character's fate and kind of his 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 dogged kind of determinism and just end up being kind of I guess like Sisyphus, kinda of like just like rolling that rock uphill and getting nowhere that yeah. by the end of the movie like did, the corporate engine kind of marches on there's no sense of like relief really there's some happiness to it but it's just it's just like kind of like it's 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 a a fight you won't win really which some other films kind of don't really engage in Really, yeah
3: it is it is very bittersweet yeah i'll give you that and i think um it's kind of in line with other kind of like modern film modern films like um logan lucky and anthony bourdain's parts unknown west virginia episode that's kind of finally starting to recognize kind of like this kind of Really stiff, unbending sense of pride inherent in people from West Virginia because it's like coal country and like they have been suffering for at least the last 50 years in regards to that industry. So that's people recognizing that, oh, these guys aren't just opioid addicted Hicks, they're, you know, people with a real sense of um, pride, but specific to the state rather than like this kind of sense of Southern, uh, you know, hooray for Dixie kind of thing. And I think that's uh, something. Uh, films are really starting to get
2: right. It's almost like a more. It sounds weird to say, but it's more positive depiction of Trump country. I mean, so often pro- Trump country is so like they're all Trump supporters. Without often America doesn't look at the white working class sometimes in an endearing sense, and obviously sometimes you have the white nationalism that exists within some of these communities. But like there's, there is yeah. a, a poverty there that that isn't always looked at empathetically in, in U.S. cinema. That's a good point.
1: We move on to wildlife um while we're just talking about the big roles because. He was probably cast by former I know the face subject Paul Dano after they had worked together on Love and Mercy, where he had played brian wilson's uh toxic prick of a dad and that, and uh Dano must have liked working with him because he's top build and his name is on the posters for wildlife, uh, which is great to see um so you wanna, will we talk about that yeah
2: Jason Harpa is a local pro and he gets fired basically because uh well first he tries to one of the players, uh, one of the local, play- well, local people, members, I suppose, um, and then uh, he's offered his job back and then doesn't take it back. Basically, it's about the relationship between him and K- his wife, Carrie who been living in kind of 1950s, at Montana? I think it is. They are typical 1950s uh, slash 60s kind of uh, suburban disillusionment. Uh, the husband and wife strain, straying, uh, the relationship is straying, they're drifting apart. In short, in one sentence, it's a movie about Two adults acting like children, which in turn means you have one ad- child forced to act like an adult. And Bill Camp, I guess, comes in and into the, into the picture because he is kind of the epitome of uh, an adult living with no sense of obligation. Um, and you have the two other adults in the film trying to move away from that obligation. I guess the kid, I don't know the actor's name, but he's fantastic in that. And having watching his like life fall apart via uh, via his parents is
3: really hard to watch.
1: You haven't seen M. M Night Shyamalan's The Visit. He plays a a little rapping boy in that.
3: No one has seen M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. Stop (laughs) trying to sell M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit, Stephen.
1: The Visit's great, and that kid gets a poopy diaper in the face in that movie. That is cinema. Yeah, that is. (laughs) That's pure cinema. Um, Yeah, I love this movie. And this reminds me of my favorite movie, probably ever. The Master. It has that sort of 60s, like... I have everything I want and yet I'm not happy sort of vibe. And like even the fact that in wildlife, the kid works in a shop that takes perfect portraits of families. That's what um, Freddie Quell does in The Master. And it's kind of like people are trying to like, they peer on the outside very happy. And then the more you go into them, their lives, they are deeply unhappy and unsatisfied. I think Warren is a very sleazy character in a way. And he's sort of a character who we see a lot in movies where you know he's sucking on a cigar. Mm. You know he's using his kind of position in life, like his wealth, to seduce a younger woman. And we see that he's got like the one condom in the bedside drawer. And you know, so that scene where he's casually walking around um, the house with his lad out when uh, he thought that Kerry Mulligan's kid
3: was asleep. Uh, small ass.
1: That reminded me of that scene in Hereditary. You know, with all the naked old people. <laughs> <laughs> like it's almost like shot like a horror movie. And but also like. Bill Campbell, sort of like in Dark Waters where he could be playing a stereotype, he adds a lot more depth to it because on a character level he's fought in two wars and he's got this limp and he, that's brave. And, you know, from what Jana, uh, Janet, Janet uh, Carrie Mulligan's character says about his business, he actually seems to be quite smart and hardworking. Like he's not like Bill Paxton in True Lies, you know, like talking all this shit. And But on a performance level, I think he makes Warren a very warm creature. Like he feels very attentive to Carrie Mulligan and kind to her son you know he's funny. He offers him like wine and food. There's that lovely moment where he's watching Morgan's character Jeanette dance with her son, and he's smiling. And you you wonder if this divorcee is just having fun being around people again. If he's been lonely, and I think so much of the movie is from the kid's point of view, like watching his parents' marriage disintegrate. And we're we're meant to distrust Camp's character because he's like the other man. But like I think Bill Camp's decision to downplay that seediness and spotlight warren's better qualities that that's there's this fascinating duality at play because you know camp has me thinking like maybe mulligan's better off with camp than gyllenhaal you know what i mean and that's that's more dramatically interesting i was yeah. curious what you think of that. i think he's the most interesting character in the movie aside from maybe carrie mulligan uh,
3: yeah I, I would agree um i think he is the most interesting but i think what makes him interesting is that everyone in wildlife i think maybe maybe, maybe this is true of him as well but i think all the other main characters in wildlife um Jerry, Jean and Joe, are very unsure of who they are and what they want out of life. And I think Warren is kind of the opposite of that. Like He's very sure of himself, or at least he comes across that way, and he's very sure of what he wants, which kind of makes him a threat in his own, in his own way to um, uh, Jerry and Jean and Joe, I guess, to this kind of family unit that has already splintered in a way and is in danger of just coming apart at the seams completely. So I think it's um, it's just interesting to see how he compares with uh, a man who is acts like he's very sure of himself, like Jerry, uh, who's probably by Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, but you know really isn't, and so seeks to just find this kind of to like outsource his masculinity in this very masculine activity of fighting a forest fire, even though he's doing the least masculine thing to do, which is abandon his family for uh, two months. I
2: have a question for you too. actually. Do you know when
3: Bill Camp first appears in this movie?
1: It's when they're swimming, right? No. Okay. I was looking out for this. All right.
2: Because I reviewed I this for Head Stuff and I didn't pick this up the first time either. The first time you see him in this in this movie is when he is you see him from his behind his back and Jake Dilhaw is literally literally cleaning shining his shoes. Yes, you're right. And he's on the ground. Literally like that. And like that is that is obviously their relationship. He is the spit on his shoes, I guess. Very cleverly and admittedly, he is the cuckold. Though Cam's character, he is so sure of himself. I think he used to be Gene and Jerry. Yeah, I think he used to be a Gene or a Jerry. I think he definitely, that was the case. Uh, at some point in his life, he had what Jay Gyllenhaal's character, Jake Gyllenhaal character had. He was a, a husband who, and who was, for whatever reason, unfulfilled. He was completely... Shirked those obligations of like, you know, suburban 1960s life and decided to live life as he kind of chooses. He, he has a family who just aren't there, for for instance. And Bill Camp said he's just somebody who has lived his life and now wants to enjoy his life. And he really does humanize that guy because, on one hand, from the kid's perspective, he's completely sleazy. Mm. But from our perspective, we don't like what he's doing, but there is a, a human understanding of what he's doing. Somebody who has kind of gone through the quote unquote rat race yeah. and is someone who really wants to come out the other side not completely haggard by it, and instead kind of live a mildly hedonistic life. I think one of the best reveals in the movie is that when Gyllenhaal goes over to the house and have a, <laughs> tries, to, tries to burn the house down, <laughs> such an escalation, and then you, you think Kay Mulligan's going to be there, but it's some other woman, and, and you're suddenly going, he was not trying to kind of really cook all them, He just because he's just someone who's decided to kind of exercise himself from the typical social contract, I guess, that existed at the time of what, of what, of what a man and husband was supposed to be. And... Um, And I guess he's supposed to be someone who um, maybe, you know, he was lonely. Maybe you'd argue he was the least lonely he'd ever been in his life. I think that really, that kind of uncertainty and and that performance really humanizes someone who we're supposed to maybe at first despise, but end, uh, end up understanding a bit more.
3: Yeah, I don't come out, I'd never, I didn't come out of the film liking or disliking him any more than I did at the start, but I definitely understood him a lot more. And I think that's, that's a real achievement, you know.
1: We fly through some of his other smaller roles now, so he's got a bit part in Killing of a Sacred Deer.
3: Yeah, so he plays Matthew, the friend and anesthesiologist colleague to Stephen Murphy, who's played by Colin Farrell, who's a heart surgeon who accidentally killed a patient whose son, Martin, who's played by Barry Keoghan, former subject, who is now seeking revenge. Okay. How are the kids?
0: They're doing very well. Bob has started piano lessons. The teacher says he's very talented. Now we have to get him one so he can practice at home. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I'm renovating the clinic. I'm on the phone all day.
2: Our daughter started menstruating
3: last week. Great. Yes. She was a little scared, but she's okay now. You haven't seen her in ages. Not since last summer at the school choir. Recital.
0: You and Mary should come over one night for dinner. You really shouldn't stay late either. Drink that cocktail you ordered, get yourself home. You've got to be at the hospital in
3: six hours. Time to go down. Yes. Good night. Good night, Matthew. So he's, he's one of these kind of odd, kind of supporting bit players in a Yorgos Lanthimos film that just kind of slots really well into the director's kind of like odd, artificial worlds. And he's like prone to these really odd pronouncements as if he isn't quite sure how to talk to people. Like... Uh, um, Colin Farrell's character is showing him the new watch he got and he's like uh, oh how many um, how how deep can you go um, uh, when you're wearing it underwater he's like 50 metres how wonderful <laughs> or there when um, uh, I think he they're at some function and Colin Farrell's like our daughter started menstruating last month and he just goes yeah. terrific <laughs> and it's also it's also interesting it's how it's one of two like it's one of two Nicole Kidman movies in two consecutive years where she's forced to masturbate a disgusting man for information. In oh, in Destroyer. Yeah, in Destroyer. 2017 has The Killing of a Sick Deer and 2018 has um, Destroyer.
1: But this happens all the time in Lanthimos movies because it happens in Lobster and it happens in The Favourite. I think he's got like, he finds it very funny, this idea of women giving unenthusiastic hand jobs. <laughs> <laughs> to people like there's always this, it happens all the time. You must think, or, or it's a Quentin Tarantino foot thing, but uh, um, I don't know. It just keeps coming back.
3: I think that's that's the thing that that's the linchpin of his character, though, is that you know he begins this film as a relatively pleasant, if slightly unusual man, but this is it's really quickly turned on its head as he's like sacrifices this reputation he has with um uh, Stephen and his wife for th- this really brief sexual pleasure that like realistically. Not to be crass, but he could do himself at home. <laughs> it's in line with Dogtooth and the Lobster, and uh, I haven't seen any of it. I haven't seen like the favorite or Alps, but it's ju- in, it's just another Lanthimos film that aims to reveal like this really na- these really nasty, rotten depths hidden beneath uh, society's kind of thin veneer of civility and respect. And uh, he does slot into like the view um, Barry Keoghan's character Martin has of the world because uh, obviously he's like this guy who's pretending to be good as Martin views Stephen. But he's revealed to be quite ugly as the film goes on. And his uh, he was his role wraps up really quickly. I don't think he comes up again after uh, uh, Nicole Kidman gives him that handjob. But uh, he, it's kind of the first real sign that things are going very wrong in this kind of very expensive-looking but empty and sterile world mm. that Lanthimos has built.
1: That's a good point. And actually, sometimes... I feel like Yorgos gets boiled down to people talking like robots. So your description of it exposing the sort of seediness within humans is... Uh, I actually haven't thought about that before. That's really on the money, I think. Be- Any other movies you want to uh, spotlight?
2: Molly's Game, maybe? It's, it's it's the true story of a, uh, a woman played by Jessica Chastain. She, she ends up running a high stakes poker game basically follows her trials and tribulations, and basically she ends up in a RICO indictment. So she gets uh, arrested and charged and it kind of follows a court case and her interactions with Idris Elba who plays her, her lawyer. And that's kind of a framing device as she describes her years as somebody who ran this poker game and the you know the kind of characters she met along the way. The movie itself is decent. I think one of the problems with the movie is that I want, there's no pun intended. It's a, it feels like a very low stakes movie. Hey! <laughs> But, like, the best part of the movie, I think, is, is when you get a sense of the stakes and how it affects these people's lives, this, this kind, of, the kind of seedy, somewhat seedy world of a list of high-stakes poker. And, and I think Bill Camp's little character, uh, he basically plays a really efficient, successful poker player who's probably the best poker player in, in the movie. And Bill Camps' little art is, is really effective because he's someone who's fantastic and he comes into it with, like, millions of dollars. And he is super successful and um, obviously makes a lot of money doing this. And I think his story is the most, I guess, evocative of, 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 of the stakes of this world. You can go in one evening, you know, a millionaire and come out two days later in the kind of death that won't leave you for the rest of your life.
0: Harlan Eustace was excited about the surprise 40th birthday party he was throwing for his wife in 24 hours. Went to the old courtyard of the Buffalo Club about hundred people. Kumamoto oysters, snow crabs, lots. He wasn't taking off menu items to show off. He was genuinely excited about the party he was giving his wife. She doesn't know anything about it. She thinks we're having dinner with his brother and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I liked Harlan, but nobody else liked him except Player X. He played tight, uh, didn't give a lot of action, and always got his money in good, which means he was running the odds.
3: 5,000 to call. Nope.
0: In other words, he was playing poker, and the others were gambling. And he won. By midnight, Harlan had tripled his original $50,000 buy-in, but everything came off the rails with one hand. And that's how it happens. That's how you go full tilt.
2: And it, it, it's kind of, there's a horrible reveal that, that one of the characters, the player X like is basically kind of toying with him the whole time, I suppose. Probably the best line in the whole movie. character characters, he's doing really successfully and he ends up losing to like the worst player on the board. 10, 15 minutes in the movie, and we get a better sense of what, what gambling addiction is and how devastating it can be. Jesse saying, is like, Why are you doing this? You're losing money. You're losing money on this. And why are you doing this? And Payrex just goes, Oh, I don't do this for the money. I want to ruin people's lives. Jesus. And like, there's this, it was a great scene when like, I think Bill Camp loses, like, his one of the last hands we see him in the movie. There's a real honesty to, to his depiction of like the distress of, of suddenly finding yourself in. Really, so crushing death in the space of just a couple days. The highs and lows of poker is really encapsulating just his little arc, and it's the best part of the movie.
1: I know that face are delighted and proud to be sponsored by the podcast One Hundred and Eighty Degrees. What do you know about sustainable energy? What does being energy efficient actually mean? What can your local community do to become more energy efficient? 180 Degrees is a podcast answering these questions by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. They chat to the people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home, and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions, and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. It is great, wholesome content. Subscribe to 180 Degrees wherever you get your podcasts from, and check out their latest episode when Andrew and I are done talking about Bill Camp. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff podcast network, Ireland's largest podcast network, and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know The Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus VAT per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. I watched Tamara Drew for this. Have you seen Tamara Drew? Uh, no, no. <laughs> it's great I'd, I'd always heard about this movie never watched it but essentially Thompson Grieg from Black Books runs this cottage uh, in the British countryside where people can come and write in peace Uh, She runs with her husband, this acclaimed crime writer played by the great Roger Allum who's just a total asshole in the movie. Like He's full of himself, constantly having affairs and she's also helped by this uh, really handsome local handyman played by Luke Evans and um, those three and the writers at the college's Lives are turned upside down by the arrival of Tamara Drew played by Gemma Arden, this woman who grew up in the town and used to date Evans and she's gotten a nose job and become gorgeous and is dating a rock star played by Dominic Cooper and is now a successful journalist so in her own right, and her arrival stirs things up and leads to some love triangles. And uh, it's really fun, filled with charm performances, great one-liners, uh, a lot of, like, a sense of, like, building kind of farce. And it, I, I was described non-fiction, the Juliette Binoche movie about this, but I think the same thing applies for Tamara Drew. It's like having a few too many drinks at an industry party and hearing some hot gossip about someone you know.
3: Oh, I've been there, yeah.
1: <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> What's I think most interesting about it from this Paul's perspective is that Camp is really funny in it. And, you know, he's this American scholar who, you know, spends time at the cottage to write this academic book about Thomas Hardy. And, you know, I'm already a Hardy boy love Jude the Obscure, love Mayor Casterbridge, so I'm already in the bag for this character, this performance, but... And he's he's a little bookish, and maybe a little pretentious, but he's very kind-hearted, and he's really bowled over by the beauty of the countryside, and spends a lot of time in wonder, and he also... is because he's so bookish, he always has these, like, witty bon mots, and... You know, there's a lot of stuff in Tomorrow Drew that Bill Camp characters don't often get to do. Like there's a scene of him dancing in a field, wiggling his butt. There's another scene where he's jogging and is startled by a cow and just face plants. That's really funny. But he also gets to be flirty. And he and Grieg build this uh, really sweet relationship because she helps him with his writer's block. And he comforts her when her husband, who he hates because he's always roasting Camp about how commercially unsuccessful he is. When he's being the worst, like, Camp consoles her. And uh, their growing romance sort of sneaks up on the viewer and is really lovely. And, like, spoiler alert, but, like, you punch the air when they kiss. Uh, the two are really excellent. And um, I just like that the movie devotes so much time to these middle-aged people's growing love. I, just, I don't know, I just would love to see Bill Camp do more comedy.
3: Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's something that's lacking in uh, his, his career as a whole.
1: Andrew was joking that he was having a hard time finding, like... A, you know, a movie where he wasn't, uh, like, 30th build. I and mean, talk about hostiles, <laughs> which I watched two hours and 20 minutes of, and he has one scene. But, um, like, Tamara Drew was sort of delightful, where you're like, he's in this, like, a lot. <laughs> like, this is great. Uh, will we check out, we'll we talk about hostiles, because um, I know Andrew watched a scene from it. Um, I could, I've watched the whole movie. So, basically, in, 19, in 1892, after two decades of fighting Indians, uh, the U.S.'s cavalry captain and war hero, Joseph Blocker, played by Christian Bale, is ordered to escort the ailing uh, Cheyenne chief, uh, Yellow Hawk, played by West, the, uh, his most despised enemy, to his ancestral home in Montana, uh, the Valley of the Bears, it's called. And it's a sign of goodwill as like, America's changing. And uh, yeah, it's a movie I liked a lot. Like, I talked a, lot, a bit about this in our 2021 Look Ahead episode because we discussed Antlers, from, which is going to be from the same director, Scott Cooper. And I think he makes these movies which are never the most original, but always look handsome, have great performances, and a real command of tone. Yeah. And they are always these mid-budget adult thrillers which we often bemoan the fact that we you know don't get a lot of them in Hollywood anymore. And um, I think also noteworthy is that Bill Camp alongside Jesse Plemons and Rory Cochran is one of Scott Cooper's regulars and all three appear in both Hostiles the Western and his gangster flick back mass. And Hostiles is very good. I uh, would recommend people check it out. Bill Camp has um, one scene, so that's tough for this pod. But I think it's a long and good scene. Like he plays this frontier correspondent for a political magazine, Harper's Weekly, and is uh, covering the story of the Indian chief being escorted to his home. And he's there when Bale gets the news that he's going to be doing it. And Bale's character is really angry and he hates Yellowhawk because he killed loads of his friends. And Bill Camp sort of says the thing that we as viewers think and Bale's character isn't ready to hear yet which is like you know it's not as if you didn't do the same thing to the Indians and he he says something like is it true that you took more scalps than Sitting Bull himself and Bale like gets right into his face and says you've never seen a lick of war you have no idea what it does to a man and like Camp's great in the scene and it's you know he's right so we like him but he's also being a bit condescending and morally superior and it's, mm. it's not a major scene but it does like lay out pretty well the emotional crooks of the movie that you know bell hated indians his whole life he's taught to hate him it's a job and but then just after spending like a few days or a few weeks with them he's like ah, these people aren't so bad we're the same <laughs> it made me want to see camp B in another western because he i think he's got the face the body yeah. the presence for it you know
3: the burliness yeah, I presume there was just an earlier, maybe more conservative draft of the script where uh, his character Jeremiah Wilkes goes with uh, Captain Blocker's unit, and it's kind of like you know it's his, he has probably had a bigger role where it's like oh wow, savagery and civility go hand in hand. This will make a good column for Harper's Weekly, something <laughs> stupid like that. But I'm glad it didn't because the film, uh, from what I understand, has enough going on without his further involvement. And he's like he's given very little to say in the movie, but he he really makes his character stick through like all these dismissive gestures and derisive laughter. He shoots uh, Blocker's way, and uh, I think by the time that scene is over is over. To paraphrase Captain Blocker, we have a war bag of reasons to dislike Wilkes. He's also
1: has placed the homeless vagrant in Birdman, reading Macbeth, and uh, I think is the best joke in the movie where he's like doing the fiery monologue about like the, you know the sound and fury. And he just like completely drops and is like, "How'd you like my take, man? Was it too much?" Really funny. <laughs> he, as you, Mark, pointed out in our in our group chat, like he keeps on going, like as Michael Keaton walks away, like, like a true maniac. Do you want to talk about uh, the night of, Mark?
2: Yes. So the night of, obviously, I, I, I we talked talking about as you mentioned earlier, because uh, we're talking about Tamara Drew, that it was that the performance, surprising that performances before the night of, because I think there is a clear watershed moment in that career. I think both for Bill Camp. Uh, as a sporting car- character actor, his character actor career had a worship moment, and Riz Ahmed, who played the lead Naz, in it, he had a worship moment. I think he definitely there's definitely a before or after after him as well. And it was it was a huge show at the time. It was it it was been in production for years. It was I think it was a it was a remake of a great BBC show. But basically, Ben Wishaw played the uh, Riz Ahmed character, and and I think there was a Robert De Niro was attached at one stage, and but it really got going when James Gandolfini was attached. Uh, he played the John Turturro character who was like the, the lawyer representing Reza Ahmed. And then, of course, he sadly died just before production and they had to, they had to find uh, David he died just before the production started. So they had to find uh, a new cast member and eventually uh, they got decided on John Turturro. But basically, it's an interesting crime procedural. It's a limited series and it follows uh, Reza Ahmed's character, Nas, a Pakistani-American living in New York. Basically, he's a, he's a college student and he's kind of Introverted. He's 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 very also very intelligent. He's a tutor. He gets invited to a party, and he he has one minor act of indiscretion, which is that he basically momentarily borrows slash steals his dad's car, and it kind of sets in a, a chain of events where he meets. He doesn't end up at the party. He accidentally takes a woman called Andrea into his taxi cab. Decides to take her around for a while, and eventually she wakes up dead with loads of stab wounds, and after a kind of a night of passion, and also unfortunately. Just before that, he stabbed her in the hand in, after they took some uh, illicit drugs, so she didn't feel it in kind of a weird, pre-coital, <laughs> dangerous game thing. So it's looking bad for him. Anyway, um, it, it, that, that pilot is fantastic. Uh, it's one of the best pieces of the TV. I, the show itself doesn't go fantastically uh, in, in, in a great direction, I think. Especially Naz's arc. I think Riz Adnan is fantastic. He's a great actor. And he's great in it. But um, Bruce Camp, basically... His character is Detective Box. He's called basically to to cover the the, the case, and he I just watched the, we watched the pilot for this, and he's fantastic in it. <laughs> that the pilot's great because it's like that kind of things falling into place. That the first half is like the first twenty minutes is a dream, and the, it's an hour and twenty minutes, and the last hour is a complete nightmare. And Bill Camp's character, who is who is the kind of epitome of like everything going wrong for Riz Ahmed, he is he's, he's first arrested for drink driving, and then he. Uh, basically ends up in the cell, they find the dead body and there's this great like, series of moments where he's in the jail and he's getting searched with Bill Camp who's been assigned to his case without realising that uh, his amulet is in any way connected to the, to, the, to the murdered girl. They're like listening out, well I think maybe Bill Camp's car is like, well I think maybe, uh, like, well, I think maybe you know, uh, it would be, a, if I had to guess the murder weapon, I don't know, like a three inch knife and like, literally the, the cop like, takes it out, out of his jacket <laughs> pocket and like, he's back in focus. Camp's character, he's like, he is not the villain of the piece, which is great. I mean, he's very good at this. He's just the antagonist of, the, of at least of the first episode. He he is a committed, intelligent, uh, we get the sense very aerodict cop. <laughs> he rolls up to the, the crime scene and he's blaring like an aria from an opera. And it just, it's just like, <laughs> obviously extremely loud because you can hear it from like down the road. And He comes out of the car. And what's great about his character, I think, um, immediately we get the sense that he's like, the Sherlock Holmes of of the New York Police Department. He he's kind of reminds you of Paulie from Goodfellas, and about that line about how he doesn't need to go any, go to anybody because people come to him, everything oh, yeah. gravitates towards him, and he kind of always is somebody who's kind of angling towards kind of finding the truth, whatever. And he he kind of goes through the most fascinating arc of the thing as well because that first episode we are completely with him, in, in the sense that we want we want Nance's character to kind of get through it all, um obviously, but like if you're in Box's shoes. Uh, you would completely think he's a murderer. I mean, you know, all the evidence is stacked against him. And that's kind of the idea. Is if we're given a character who we empathise with, who we're given all the details with, it seems like he's the murderer. And Fox's the character, then we're, we're empathising with this detective. That's what kind of fa- so fascinating with the tension of the first episode. Everything is kind of stacked against Naz, and we completely understand why the police would think that. So there's no villain in that first episode, and it's fantastic.
0: What am I not seeing? Explain to me what I'm not understanding.
1: It looks like I killed her, I know that.
0: That's how it looks. But it's not that simple, is it?
1: Also, he, he gets re-teams with Richard Price, who created The Night Of, with uh, The Outsider, which is their adapt- adaptation of Stephen King. It was a, r- a really good adaptation in that... You know, Richard Price took this very pulpy Stephen King horror novel with, like, a great premise and then just shot it and, like, wrote it in the most realistic way possible. It's like, what if this actually happened? And it sort of became a show about ordinary people confronted with a thing they couldn't understand. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I think... The ending kind of faltered a little bit, but I'd still recommend people watch it. But there was a little bit of criticism under it because it it went over ten episodes, and a lot of people were like thought that the two or three last two or three episodes dragged. They said, "Oh, it should have been eight episodes." But my counter to that would be that you wouldn't get more time with the character actors in the show because there's like Patty Considine, Yul Vasquez, Jeremy Bob, Mark Manchaka, Mayor Winningham, all these great actors. Julianne Nicholson, but there's also Bill Camp who plays the Jason Bateman in the show's like bulldog lawyer who um, really hates the main character played by Ben Mendelsohn because it's meant to be Ben Mendelsohn arrests Jason Bateman because it seems like all the evidence points that he murdered this child and like they have witnesses who saw him with the kid nearby the murder like around the same time but Jason Bateman has an alibi he was... 300 miles away at a teacher's conference so it's sort of you start to think that there might be something sinister going on maybe a doppelganger of some sort and yeah. uh ben Mendelson's investigating it but there's a, so much like great stuff in the first couple episodes where bill camp is just like you fucking idiot <laughs> ben Mendelson! what do you think <laughs> what do you think you're doing how dare you do that? and ben Mendelson did make uh because ben Mendelson was really offended by the crime he arrested jason bateman in front of everybody because he was like sure that Pete was guilty. And once he starts to realise that he wasn't guilty, he's basically destroyed Jason Bateman's life. So the, like Bill Camp's like, I'm going to sue you. There's all this great stuff. But then throughout the show, he undergoes this arc where he starts to maybe not fully believe in the monster that... Is preying on all these people in the town, but starting to realize that like, oh, something is wrong, and he kind of becomes involved. And you just you wouldn't get as like all the great little Bill Campisms. There's this great scene where um him and Patty Constance end up eating fried chicken together and smoking weed, and it's great. <laughs> and it all actually kind of inadvertently leads to many people dying, and the you know. <laughs> all the main characters being put in peril. And uh, I won't spoil how it happens, but it's all great. Really enjoyed that stuff. So, uh, and also the book show's been a lot of TV shows as well, because he's also in the looming terror, which you like, right?
2: Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a good show. Um, It's it's based on a, a big nonfiction book and it, it, it follows basically the, the run up to the twin terror attacks and the kind of the dual investigations into Al-Qaeda by both the FBI and the CIA. And if it's like a 10 part series and it goes into how uh, the bureaucracy and the lack of communication between these two departments kind of is what led to the kind of the inadequate investigating that led was meant that the organizers and the perpetrators of the twin terror attacks were allowed to carry it out. And they should have been caught at the various points. Uh, so Jeff Daniels basically plays the head of the FBI investigation. And Peter Sarasgar is, is really good in this. He plays this awful, really awful neocon kind of CIA head figure who, like, basically has, like, no respect for human life at all, like, his this bit was like, we should get carpet bomb in Afghanistan um, uh, to get al-Qaeda, and, like, like just, like, and he's just, like, this is, like, like, a real thing. That was a real position at the time. The CIA wasn't, they, they weren't sharing info with the FBI at all. Like, out there, it was, just, it was very, like, mind games. Bill Camp's character plays a composite FBI figure who investigates the bombings and tries to find uh, perpetrators, and he is... The best thing about it again, I mean, we keep saying this, this, this thing is why he's so good, but they, it's especially good. And he kind of his his approach is like being on the ground, talking to the locals. It, it's clearly a politics to the show, you know. So it will be much debated, but like, and and has a kind of this is the good approach and the bad approach to the U.S. kind of foreign activity, I suppose. But his like approach is just like being on the ground, talking to the locals, uh, getting that kind of info as opposed to the kind of scorched search approach to the CIA and trying to get, uh, trying to get Al Qaeda.
0: I was pretty good, and I wound up doing some advanced training in counter-interrogation techniques. You ever did that? Hmm. You ever, sir? Yeah, of course. Right, so you know the whole thing, right? They beat you up, scream at you, try to get you to answer their questions, and the whole mm-hmm. thing is you gotta stick to your cover story, and if you do that, you pass. And you, sir, you did very, very well. Got a great cover story, but you made two mistakes.
2: And I think that that's what the show is about. a you know, much more sensible approach to. You know dealing with with people in other countries maybe yeah
1: I'm certainly going to watch that because I just got Amazon Prime because cinemas are <laughs> closed, so I, I needed to get more movies in but yeah, so we hit Queen's gambit then so um I've talked a lot about how Bill camp characters you know show up in films or TV and you you think you have an idea of what they're those characters may be like because uh, yeah he's over six foot, he's burly he looks imposing he has all he has all these great lines and wrinkles on his face that he can contour into looking very serious and grave and often the joy I think in his characters is how sort of subverts that those expectations and you know camp reveals he's kind of rich in her life and his performances. i think queen's gambit might be the apex of that because he's this stern janitor who doesn't talk much or show much affection to beth the lead character the chess prodigy he almost begrudgingly at first teaches her chess before realizing what a natural she is and at first you think jesus i hope he's not a creep and he's not (laughs) which is great which is a thing that happens a lot in the show Uh, but you you quickly get that he's just not the type of person who's good at showing emotions or at talking to people, which is probably why he he's a janitor who spends his, most of his time in a basement doing maintenance. His friend takes a photo of him and Beth, and Beth puts her hand on his shoulder and he just looks so stern. But you can tell he's not. It's just like that's his natural manner. And, yeah. um, even despite not speaking so much and like barely moving his face like he he suddenly conveys this respect and paternal love for Beth like the the way his lip for a second almost curls into a smile when Beth beats his friend at chess or later when she she's being punished by the orphanage for and you know by not being allowed to play chess with him anymore, and she tells him she wishes they could play together again, and he he's in the middle of a task, and he doesn't respond, but his lip just quivers, and then he continues on with this task, and you just know his heart is breaking and the yeah. same he has this really long sigh when she leaves the orphanage with um her adopted mom played by Marielle Heller and he just really leaves an impression so that when a, a pivotal point of the finale is her revisiting the orphanage for the first time and you know seeing he had followed her progress throughout the years and had kept that photo where he looked so grumpy out of pride for her and had also kept the note where she had asked for a loan for him from him to enter this uh, chess tournament that she said she would pay him back for but never did if she won Um, he didn't care Yeah. You know, that is when I burst into tears and yeah, it's because of Bill Camp you know yeah I know Mark you are quite a fan right
2: uh, yeah no he's, he's fantastic yeah. and uh, that scene he's like the most impactful moment is kind of him like, even though he's not in the scene he that scene where she goes into the basement it, it's great that the movie didn't do this thing where it's like oh they reconnect and like it's more effective, impactful and more affecting but in his absence we kind of felt his love or his, at least his, his adoration and that we get the sense he had somebody in his life even if she wasn't really there, but he could follow and he could feel like a father figure. The great thing about The Queen's Gambit, whatever you really like about it, obviously it's a female-centered show, but it's also kind of, it's really a show about male and female interaction in a healthy way. I mean, there's lots of things I love about it. It's all the men, they're all helping her. Like it's, very rarely do you see men in TV shows or films help a woman with intellectual pursuits. You know, obviously she has two legal fathers in the show. One is a, an adoptive father who is awful and he's completely absent. And then he's a biological father who never doesn't want anything to do with her in the first place, acts like she doesn't exist, and is equally awful. And So she has two absent fathers, and like her only father in the show, obviously, is, you know, Bill Camp. He's he's her father figure. He's the person who of guided her, and Bill Camp is, is so good because in so many of his roles, he's so talkative, and he can only express himself years later after his death. And he's fantastic in those early scenes, um, in that first episode. He, we do appear that he's this creepy guy, but he turns out to be this kind of very deeply feeling man we, we, we get people yeah, says uh, years after he died
1: it's really sad and you know it's a, if you haven't watched it yet though apparently like more people have watched queen's gambit than the super bowl according to netflix so maybe everyone has watched it but it still kind of feels weirdly underrated to me so I, I want more people to check it out i really love it a lot um just i said at the beginning of the episode bill camp has a lot of more projects on the horizon i think the two that we should spotlight which i think are coming out pretty soon there's passing which is rebecca hall's directorial debut starring ruth nega and tessa thompson about women in I, I think it might be in the 30s or 40s in america who try to pass as white and it's uh like a drama bill camps in that and that like is coming i think it's playing at sundance this year which means it will be oscar eligible so you know that can happen and then cool. news of the world he's in the new paul greengrass movie which is a western with tom hanks so i guess we are going to see him in another western yes yeah, yeah class Andrew, where can people find more of your work?
3: You can find me at the Headstuff gaming section, where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it.
1: Uh, Mark, would you have anything you'd like to plug? You've been doing some great work for Headstuff. Last month you reviewed uh, American Utopia, and you reviewed Wonder Woman 1984, right?
0: Yeah.
2: The only thing I want to plug really is, is the head Stuff music and film sessions. And yeah, stay safe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wear a mask. <laughs> Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Emails at i know the face pod at gmail If you have someone you'd like us to cover on the show, thanks to Shannon Fernandez for editing and running our socials. You know, follow us at Twitter at i know the face p one, Instagram at i know the face, follow us at Facebook and at i know the face pod. Also, check out uh, podcast dot com where there's going to be a Patreon from now on. So if people donate to the show you can uh, unlock exclusive bonus content from i know the face and we've recorded a few episodes already and um, i hope people like them give us money check out um head stuff all our best of the year 2020 lists are up alongside some other great stuff and uh i'll say see you later cinebos bye-bye bye-bye